We turn to the prophecy of Joel, as that's tucked away between the prophecies of Hosea and Amos. We turn to chapter 2. And going to be, we're going to begin to read at verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and earn your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, having to do especially with the elderly. Gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. There is something more important than a wedding ceremony at this point. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil. Ye shall be satisfied therewith. I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. And I will remove far off from you the northern army. This is the army of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea. That's the Dead Sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, that's the Mediterranean. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great, or if he will, terrible things. In other words, he's going to drown, drown the army like a water drowns locusts. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great, that is, terrible, wonderful things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately. He will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Notice that, beloved, how often the Holy Spirit is likened to a shower of blessings, the rain that falls do measure at the proper time, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the, and the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fans shall overflow with wine and oil. And I, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the pommel worm, my great army, which I sent among you, that is, I sent among you in judgment. And you shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, and that hath dealt wonderfully with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And now follows our text to the end of the chapter. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon them servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Thus far the reading of the prophetic word. Our text consists of verses 28 through 32, as announced of Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Most, if not all of you, are familiar with those words, but lifted from a different context. Quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is that which was prophesied by Joel. This is that, what was he referring to? This is that, this, this. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They were in the streets of Jerusalem, 10 days following the ascension on the day we call Pentecost. And they were speaking in different languages. It was a feast day of the Jews as well. It's called the Feast of the First Fruits. They began their harvest in the springtime in the May of the year, the month of May, because they grew their crops during what we call the winter when the rains fell, not snow, but rain. And the first fruits was called the day of Pentecost because it was 50 days after the Passover, if you will. And they were speaking in different tongues, languages, Jews from different parts of the Mediterranean world, therefore the Jewish feast in Jerusalem were hearing them speak in their dialect. They knew Hebrew, Aramaic, they knew Greek as well, but they had their different dialects as well as Fries versus Dutch, and they heard them in their own languages. And you know the charge was made by some who scoffed, they're drunk, that's the explanation, and Peter says, no, we're not drunk, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, beloved, begins officially the new dispensation, what we call the New Testament age. The appearance of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven appears on earth. It's not an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven appears on earth because it's ruled by the king. We considered the king this morning, the ascended king, on Pentecost, that king returns via his Holy Spirit and begins the age of evangelism. That's the New Testament age, beloved. It's the age of evangelism, the spread of the gospel to the nations, distinguishing it from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God had his people, but they were isolated. For them, dwelling in safety alone meant you dwelt in this narrow little band of land and you idolatrous, uncircumcised Gentiles stay out. They didn't bring the gospel to them. They simply kept themselves 
survived as a spiritual people as best they could within the boundaries of their own little nation. And God said, you shall dwell in safety alone and you isolate yourself from the heathen, the uncircumcised of flesh and of heart. And that all changes when you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now we are to dwell in safety alone, but our dwelling in safety alone does not mean you move out of Chicago and leave that wicked city and this whole area and you better find some place up in the northern peninsula and make a little compound with barbed wire around it and we'll dwell in safety alone. We are to dwell in safety alone right in the midst of the unbelieving, ungodly, idolatrous, whatever you want to say. Why? What explains the difference? The ability for the New Testament saint to live right in the world, with the world, and yet to be of the world the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, beloved, who brings a spiritual maturity. It's like with our children. Elementary education is in our own schools. They grow up because we know at that age they're very open, vulnerable to the errors of the world and who knows what. And then they come of age and then we can send them out to universities with the expectation they will hold their own. They have an increased understanding. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit for the New Testament saints, you see. The church now in the world, living amongst the worldlings, and now bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. Why are they now able to bring the gospel to the Gentiles with a power and a force and an explanation? Because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, beloved, bringing the church to maturity, spiritual maturity, that we can live in the world sanctified by the power of prayer and the operations of the Spirit, and then even to evangelize, bring the gospel to the world, and be used by Christ to gather his church in the New Testament age. The New Testament age, beloved, we are not simply to be interested in the Israel of God in a denomination. We must be interested in the salvation of others, our children to be sure. The Lord has given us the sword of the, spear, of, of the word and we're not simply to take it out of our sheath and admire it. My, what wonderful doctrines we have. Put it back in the sheath. That will take care of us for a week. We are called to bring this word, beloved, to others. That's the calling of our churches. I'll say this. We've called missionaries home, but I'm saying this through our churches. As Protestant churches, beloved, we may not simply allow and be satisfied. We'll let Christ gather his people from the nations by other denominations. We'll just take care of ourselves. Really? You think that's our calling? Let the Lord Christ gather his people from other de by other denominations. God be thanked he does that. But we'll just take care of ourselves. One of the last words of the ascended Christ, beloved, was go ye out into all the world and preach the gospel. That's why you are in the New Testament. I've given you my word to bear witness to it. Now, 
am I agitating against a decision of our synods? No, they had their reasons for the decisions they make. My point is, we, beloved, must be praying. We must be praying that God also, as I did in the congregational prayer, raise up men who will go out into all the world and Lord use us as Protestant reform too to preach the gospel and gather those from all flesh from the nations of the world we've given the truth beloved to declare to others not simply to admire it and use it for ourselves that too but this is Pentecost beloved and the Lord gives us his word and spirit and a calling to do that. Don't forget, Christ Jesus' word. We are to pray, for the fields are white with harvest, but the laborers be few. And we, beloved, must pray that we also may be used and serve the ascended Christ in the gathering of his elect church from the nations as he works through the words we bring by the power of the spirit who has been poured out. With that in mind, the Holy Spirit of prophecy promised when this prophecy was to be fulfilled, what the promised spirit comes to bestow and where he is to be found. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. After what? When does this prophecy take place and to what does it refer? After what? Understand, beloved, this has to be understood in the context. And that's why I began to read where I began to read earlier in the chapter where you verse, read in verse 12, also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with your fasting. But this is to take place, first of all, beloved, in the ver according to what you read in the verse just preceding where I started. Began in verse 12. How does verse 11 conclude? For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? The day of the Lord. Notice in our text there's reference to the day of the Lord as well. That's how it concludes the great and terrible day of the Lord come. So when are these words to come to pass? Well, these words are to come to pass after this day of the Lord, referred to in chapter, verse 11. But I want to point out that that, that day of the Lord is to be distinguished from the day of the Lord you find in verse 32. What you find in verse 11 is a foreshadowing of what you find in verse 32, and uh, in verse, I should say, 31, the great and terrible day of the Lord. They are two distinct days of the Lord. The one is foreshadowing the other. The one you have in our text, beloved, is the final judgment. 
the return of Christ upon the clouds, that great and terrible day of the Lord, and who shall abide the day of his coming? I'll tell you who shall abide the day of his coming. He who hears what is said in verse 12, who rends their hearts and not their garments, and goes before the Lord in repentance and prayer. Spare us, Lord, and have mercy upon us. That's who's going to be spared this final judgment, this great and terrible day when it comes. No others. How does the Lord bring about this great day of repentance? He brings about this great day of repentance, beloved, by two means. The one is the discipline of the first great day of the Lord. That's what the Babylonian captivity was. It was a day of discipline, of the anger of God against the people who persisted in their sins and not, did not repent as they should have, were called to. And as a father, in the severity of his mercy, he turns to the rod and he destroys Jerusalem and chases Israel out of the land. And there in the land, beloved, prophets like Ezekiel preach. And there comes repentance, there comes confession, and a remnant is returned. And along with that is going to come the outpouring of the Spirit to accomplish this. Notice, beloved, that in the context also is this reference to restoring to you the years that the locust hath eaten. Those locusts, as I have already indicated, has a reference to the Babylonian army and then the following captivity as they wasted the land. And whatever was planted in the land was burned, of course, and it was barren and desolate. And their lives were wasted as well in sin. But I, the day will come, Christ, the God says, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. There's going to be days that are comes that are fruitful, and he describes that in the preceding text with the, in an agricultural way, huh? Vineyards and olive yards and figs and wine and oil and so on. The question is to what is the prophet referring there? He says that afterwards I'll pour out my spirit. Well, it has reference, first of all, as I have said, to this disciplinary work of God through the Babylonians and then bringing them back to the land but it also has to do with coming to the years of prosperity and a eating in plenty but that has to do also with a repentance and then comes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in connection with that repentance. And then following that repentance will come the great and terrible day of the Lord. So you may say, when is this prophecy to be fulfilled? And you might answer, well, it's to be fulfilled in the days of Pentecost. And beloved, you would be only half right. The fulfillment of this prophecy is not simply the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is the beginning of the fulfillment of these words. The fulfillment of these words, beloved, takes place in the whole of the New Testament age. And what's striking about the New Testament age 
is that words of warning are sounded and the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord in judgment and in final judgment. We might say the end is near. Of course, you say the end is near these days and those outside our circles will look at you and laugh and scoff. Yeah, we've heard that for how many thousands of years? Uh, The end is near. But in some ways that has to be said. The end is coming. Whether you want to believe it or not, the end of all things is coming. Christ is coming in judgment. And he who has not repented of his sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to perish everlastingly. And you better take that seriously. How seriously? Consider the judgments of the Lord. What's striking about this great and terrible day of the Lord is how the last book of the Bible refers to it. I'm not not the Bible, of the Old Testament refers to it. This morning we read from the last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Now we read from the last book of the Old Testament. Listen how Malachi ends his prophecy. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, lest I come and simply destroy the earth and there be no salvation. Notice Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and day, the great and terrible day of the Lord. What day is that? Well, you and I know that has reference to the John the Baptist. He is the Elijah of the New Testament, you might say. And he has reference to, and Elijah's calling was, of course, was to point them to the Messiah, the promised Christ. This is he who has been prophesied. How did John the Baptist preach? Well, read Matthew chapter 3. Interesting. He says, To you who think we have Abraham for our father, you who think, well, we have spiritual pedigree, you know, I say to you, God is able of the stones to raise up children to Abraham. Now also the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the oven. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Those are words that have to do with a judgment. Whose fan is in his hand, he will purge his floor. He will gather his wheat into the garner. That's the judgment day, beloved. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Are you wheat or are you chaff? If you are unrepentant, you are chaff. If you have not cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ, you are chaff. And if you die in your sins, you will perish like so much chaff in this fire who will purge the floor. He gathered his wheat into the garner. Those he takes with him into glory. But notice John the Baptist spoke of this great day of the Lord as Elijah the prophet speaking to the Messiah. Here is the one name under heaven by which men in the end can be saved. But he spoke in terms of judgment and warning. And you find that note throughout the scriptures, don't you? And then you get to Revelation 
and it speaks of judgment, judgment, judgment. Also, the New Testament church is to preach and is to be a preaching beloved that has to do with a final judgment in the end, but in the end, it's a preaching of judgment to give, fair, to give forewarning. It's interesting, you know, when you have volcanic eruptions, because in some ways that's the picture that you have in Joel here when it speaks of the uh, sun turning into darkness and signs in heaven, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon into blood. It's like in a volcanic eruption. When volcano, volcanoes erupt and the dust is in the air, it can be so thick you can't hardly even see the sun. There's more than just a haze as we have today. And if you look at the moon, it turns red. But those volcanic eruptions are indications of judgment. They're pictures, if you will, sent by God. One thinks of, well, I was just in Washington, the state of Washington, and visited Mount St. Helens, and they talked about that eruption. It's interesting, as you read that, it didn't just simply blow up one day. There were earthquakes for months previous to increasing in intensity. There was fair warning beloved before that mountain blew its top. There was fair warning. But many chose to stay anyway. We've had earth, earth tremors before. There was even those who finally went and said to a number of them, you have to move out of here because this thing is probably going to blow its top. There was even a bulge in the top of, and they still stayed. And then on May 18, it blew its top. It was heard by those of the Linden Church prior to the church service. It echoed 200 miles north yet. But there was fair warning. Mount Vesuvius, I bring that up because Mount Vesuvius blew its top in, in, in 69 AD. That's during the days of the apostles. 69 AD. There were fair warning above, and it covered the city that was at its foot, Pompeii. And they're digging through that city, and they have dug through that city, and they have found that it was a city of terrible immorality, something like a composite of San Francisco, Las Vegas, and New Orleans all put together. Every sin in the earth was at their use. And it also, they write, the historians trembled and smoked, and the inhabitants said, oh, not yet, not yet. We don't have anything to fear. It's done this before. And they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed. And then on a certain day in 69, it blew its top. And they were buried, and they're digging through it, and they're finding the bodies encased in the volcanic ash and lava today. Who's going to leave their sins and immorality? We will pleasure ourselves. Who needs to fear the wrath of Almighty God? The point is, beloved, Man is given fair warning, not only the judgments of creation, but by the preaching of the gospel. Part of the preaching of the gospel includes the judgments of God, a God of wrath and of righteousness. And if you continue in your ways, you will perish lest you unless you repent and turn and call upon the one name under heaven by which a man may be saved. And I'm here to tell you who that son of man is, Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, beloved, when he died... There was a great earthquake, wasn't there? And the veil of the temple rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And Israel was exposed in her sins and immorality. Now is come the judgment of the 
nation of the Jews, of Israel. God's glory is no longer with you. I have taken my word from you, and I will give it to others. It shall go forth into all the world, and I will gather my church, not simply from you who are Jews, notice all flesh, not simply you who are Jews, but from the nations, from the uncircumcised whom you so despise. And when he rose from the dead, again, a great earthquake indicating the coming of judgment of those who did not believe in the name of this risen Lord Jesus. The earth, the sun being darkened and the moon turning into blood. All foreshadowing what we, re what we read in verse 31 of the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And there is no salvation anymore. Time and history has come to its conclusion under the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God. Which raises the question, beloved, what is to be at the heart of the preaching? Is judgment to be at the heart of the preaching? This passage certainly speaks of the, of the judgment. Speaks of the wonders of heaven, earth, blood, fire, pillars of smoke, you know, sun darkness, moon into blood, the great and terrible day of the Lord, read from the end of the, of the Old Testament, some of the final words, speaks of the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Read the book of the Revelation. Listen to John the Baptist. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Let's just thunder away in judgment and wrath. No, beloved, that's not the heart of the preaching. It must, however, be an element of the preaching. That element must not be forgotten. That truth must be sounded. God is a righteous God, and he is a God of judgment and wrath upon those who do not confess the name of his Son and turn from their sins in repentance. How is the Lord going to accomplish that? Well, he's going to accomplish that by sending his word into all the world. But the prophets spoke the word, and yet, beloved, there wasn't this great day of salvation. There was more needed than simply the preaching of the word. There had to be the preaching of the word, but along with that, beloved, had to be the operations of the Holy Spirit. And so he is promised to come, and he is, prom and he is promised to fall upon all flesh in this day of the Messiah, because this is messianic prophecy, and the Old Testament believers understood this was messianic prophecy. And Peter could say on the day of Pentecost, you want to know when the Messiah was come? Well, I'll go back to an Old Testament prophet. This is that which was foretold by the Old Testament prophet. And he's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. That's why we are speaking in different languages. We're not drunk. We're speaking in the dialects of your different provinces because that is according to the prophecy itself because the word of the gospel is to go to all the nations. Notice it says all flesh, not simply those who are sons of Abraham and related by blood to Abraham, but all flesh, including those who are uncircumcised in flesh, whose heart the Holy Spirit himself can and will circumcise, flesh circumcised or not. It's interesting, you know, is the difficulty that even the apostles had in 
responding to that in a proper way and actually coming to terms with the fact that a Gentile could be saved remaining a Gentile, that is, uncircumcised in flesh and eating what they deemed to be unclean food, the, the meat of pigs and so on, and yet they can be saved as Gentiles. Maybe Gentiles can be saved, but you have to turn them into Jews, don't you? You have to proselytize them and make sure that they are circumcised. As you know, beloved, the Apostle Peter himself struggled with that. Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, he receives this vision of the tarp left down from heaven, and there's these unclean animals in, and you recall the voice said to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter took one look at those animals and said, oh no, Lord, these are all unclean animals according to the law of Moses, and I have never ever eaten anything that is unclean. And the voice says, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common, Peter. It happens three times. And then the knock on the door. He's in Joppa, of course, Peter is, and there is this Cornelius the centurion who by a vision has sent his servants down to Joppa to bring them up to Caesarea. And Peter goes with those servants to Caesarea and then says, I've been called by God and the Spirit to preach to you. And he does. And as you recall, a great wonder takes place. This is Acts chapter 10 as he's preaching. And he says in verse 43 of 10, to him gave all the prophets witness, that is to this Jesus whom I'm preaching, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him, notice that phrase again, whosoever believeth in him, it's in our text as well, is it not whosoever will, shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard the word, and they of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles, those uncircumcised Gentiles, also poured out the gift of the Spirit. They heard them speak with languages, tongues, and magnify God. Then answered Peter, can any man forbid meat, uh, water, that these should be, not be baptized, who have received the Holy Ghost as well as we, who are circumcised? Are we more holy than the Holy Ghost? We can't dwell with these Gentiles, but the Holy Ghost is in them. We better rethink ourselves, brethren. They're not circumcised, but they have the Holy Ghost. They're saved, they're believers. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then you read chapter 11. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, they of the circumcision contended with him and said, thou wentest into men uncircumcised and did eat with them. It was an accusation. How could you do that, Peter? You think they can be saved as Gentiles? And Peter rehearses to them what happened. And he implies, so you can't eat with them. And they have the Holy Ghost. So you're more holy than the Holy Ghost. Now, the Holy Ghost can dwell with them, but you can't. Maybe you better rethink this. I have had to rethink it, and I realize now, all flesh. They come in as they are, as Gentiles. And old things have passed away. And things have become new. God is going to gather his church from the nations and we are those who have to go into the world even to the Gentiles and to seek their 
salvation by the bringing of the gospel. And so they do the love. And as they say, the rest is history. Because Christ, as we said this morning, went forth conquering and to conquer using the gospel, of course, and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring that salvation. Because, of course, the question might arise, well, we can bring the word, but you know, they're unbelieving and they're not interested in what we have to say, certainly. And we can say all we want about the Holy Scriptures and what they would call the Jewish beliefs and promises and how is that going to work salvation? And the apostles had to say, we have a calling to preach the gospel. We can't save one soul or persuade one man out of, out of, out of sin unto godliness. But it's not the work of men in the end, is it? It's the work of God himself who knows his own. And when that Holy Spirit decides to blow as a wind, he will save whomever he listeth and transform hearts and use the word to bring him unto himself. So stop doubting and stop basing things on the knowledge of your own lack of power and ability and start trusting in God to save whom he will through the foolishness of preaching whom you are appointed as ambassadors to declare and set forth. And then follows New Testament history and the gathering of the church. Question is now, what does this Holy Spirit impart and how does he work if you will, and the passage that we have this, e this evening speaks of that. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Notice, beloved, it has to do with prophesying, and prophesying has to do with knowledge. The prophesying referred to here does not have to do primarily with being able to foretell the future. That's how we usually interpret the word. But the word prophesying has here to do with knowledge, understanding, if you will, understanding what the prophets have said at last properly as they point to Jesus Christ and his cross and the need for the cross and the power of the cross and then the resurrection and what follows. They are able to interpret the Holy Scriptures as they ought. The great gift of the Holy Spirit, beloved, is not talking in different languages. There may be early on in the New Testament age that gift, but that was a passing gift, temporary, until you had the Scriptures written in the languages of the people as well and sent forth in the Greek so they could read it. A temporary gift, speaking in different languages, and even the gifts of healing which passed away with the apostles. That was an apostolic gift to underscore their authority that they were the ones who were inspired to speak the inspired word of Christ so they could heal to underscore the authority of their office and their ability to speak as Christ spoke. They have passed away. But there is that which has not passed away, and that has to do with what Joel speaks of prophesying, or if you will, knowledge. And the knowledge of the scriptures so that one can explain the holy scriptures to others. That came to pass, of course, first of all, in the apostles themselves on Pentecost, didn't it? A man named 
Simon Peter, who was a fisherman by trade and certainly had not gone into any seminary or even in the school of Gamaliel and did not ha- was not highly educated. I suppose he may have had what we might call a high school diploma or the equivalent thereof. He could read, he could write, he could understand, he knew the scriptures, but he was a fisherman. And prior to that, beloved, he could read the Holy Scriptures and he was still filled with misunderstanding. It's a striking thing that Pentecost takes place in what we call chapter 2 and 10 days previous, Acts chapter 1, you have the ascension. Christ stands before them and he speaks of the promise of the Father. You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. That's verse 5, and then here's verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Ten days before Pentecost, they're still talking about an earthly kingdom and Christ sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. He's been with them how long? He's risen. He's told them the scriptures, they've begun to grasp, and they're still speaking of an earthly kingdom which is Jewish. Ten days later, the Apostle Peter, having received the Holy Spirit, says, this is that. And he speaks the kingdom of heaven as a spiritual reality and speaks of it going to the nations, to all flesh, as our speaking different languages indicate. What's the explanation? You know very well the outpouring of the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, bringing to them the mind of Christ so that they are illuminated now and can begin to explain the Holy Scriptures. But that point of our text is that's not only the special province of those who hold office in the church, apostles and, well, the ministers who've been trained in seminary, because our text doesn't simply speak of the office, special offices of, of the apostles, and some among you shall have the gift of prophecy, of knowledge, understanding. You just, you just listen to them. They'll tell you all you need to know. I will pour out my spirit on your sons, not only, but your daughters as well. That's the office of all believers, beloved. That's not the special offices. The whole church is going to receive this Holy Spirit, and The children given to you, sons and daughters, will also be able to read the scriptures. First of all, in the Old Testament, having heard the apostolic explanation in the New Testament and explain the Old Testament in the light of the New and speak concerning the prophets and what they were foretelling and can explain the scriptures and what is called of a man to be saved. Not only your sons, this is a special office, speaks of daughters who aren't supposed to hold the office of ministry or of elders and so on, but they are still the office of all believers and they also shall understand. So it's covenantal, interesting here, he's covenantal even, speaks of believers, Gentiles, all flesh, but their sons and daughters as well. The spirit shall, they shall receive and your servants and handmaids and they can prophesy, they can explain the Holy Scriptures, beloved, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is so necessary. It is in the spiritual realm, beloved, 
as in the natural realm. What is being prophesied of here is a harvest. And Joel even uses the harvest in agricultural terms in the chapter, in the, in the verses just previous, if you recall. It speaks of vineyards and olive trees and, and so on, and the early rain and the latter rain coming in due season, agricultural terms. But as the apostles, once they had the Holy, Holy Spirit, would have told you, yes, he's preaching and he's prophesying in agricultural terms, but he means that in a spiritual manner, just like Christ's parables. You know, the sower went forth to sow. That's agricultural. That's the first parable. And he was teaching his disciples spiritualities by agricultural terms. A sower went forth to sow the seed. If you're going to have a harvest in the physical realm, you better have seed. As any farmer will tell you, and I better, if I want a good harvest, I better sow plentifully. If I sow scantily, I'm going to have a scanty harvest as well. I'm going to need seed. But not just seed. If you scatter the stuff out in the parking lot, you're not going to get a harvest, beloved. He better find soil that has been cultivated. And the cultivated soil isn't, a, isn't enough either. He needs seed. He needs soil that's cultivated. But if no rain falls, or the irrigation dries up, your crop is history. There has to be the seed, there has to be the soil prepared, and there has to be the water. And the water, beloved, baptism is a picture not only of the blood of Christ, it's sprinkled because it represents the Holy Spirit coming upon our children and upon us as well, you know. You need the seed, you need the soil, you need the water. In the spiritual realm, if you're going to have a har spiritual harvest, beloved, the sower goes forth and he broadcasts the word. Can he save anybody with that word? No, he cannot. But the spirit is working. He cultivates the soil of a man's heart. Be he uncircumcised. Be he once an idolater. Be he an unbelieving man. He circumcises the heart and transforms that heart. And the seed takes root. But now you need more. You need the water as well. And the spirit, you see, as the spirit of God continues to flow to us, not just once gives us a new heart. We need his, the spirit day by day, beloved. We pray for the Holy Spirit. We must, you know, grant to me thy spirit this day, that according to the working of thy spirit, I may live the life of Christ and show whose I am. I am a Christian. But that takes the water of the Holy Spirit in connection with the preaching of the word and the newness of heart. And that is going to be granted, says Joel, and then it's, of course, stated by the Apostle Peter as well in the New Testament age, to believers, Gentiles, even in their generations. And not simply then we bring forth preachers, though may do that as well, and missionaries, though God grant that we may do that as well, but our children grow up with the knowledge of the Holy Scriptures and bear witness to others and beloved you are quite capable of doing that. One does not have to be a theologian to bear witness to others of what you find in the Holy Scriptures, who you are. In our day and age, it's as simple as saying, when you have lived in a certain way and they ask, why do you live this way? You say, because I am a Christian. 
And in the end, there is one name under heaven by which men may be saved. That's distinctive today, you know. There's only one name under heaven by which a man may be saved. It's becoming even distinctive in Christian circles. Because now Christianity is being redefined as, well, he's one way, this Jesus of yours, but there's other ways too, you know, just as long as they're good and loving. No, the apostle says there will be one name under heaven by which a man will, will be saved. And that word saved means escape, by the way. Escape what? The judgment of God. That's what? Salvation, glory. But the word for salvation here is escape the judgment. Who shall escape the judgment of God? Who shall abide the day of his coming? He who casts himself on the one name under heaven by which a man may be saved. And if you listen to what the university professors say to you, other name, you're fooling yourself, you're going to perish anyway. Just bear witness to that one name. You want to learn more about that one name? Come with me. And there also can teach you more about that one name. But the one name under heaven. Why him? There's others too who died. Maybe as martyrs. They may have. Many have died as martyrs for their cause. But not one of them was the Son of God, was he? There's only one who died as the Son of God, and that's this Jesus whom I'm telling you about. And then one might just add to that, and this is what he means to me. Any one of us can do that, beloved. You don't need a theological degree to say, and this is what he means to me. This is what he has meant to my life, to my peace, to my hope, to how I organize my life and how I relate to people. You see a certain happiness, perhaps in our circles, hope so, and a unity because of this Jesus. You will experience these things, come to know him, confess his name, seek forgiveness in his name, and follow him the way he calls you to, which is repentance, of course, and the way of conversion. Every one of us can bear witness, and that's our calling as well, and we are enabled by this Holy Spirit. And where in the end is the Spirit be found working? It says here, in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. In Zion and in Jerusalem. Notice it doesn't simply say Zion and Jerusalem shall be delivered as though it's referring to salvation of Jews and just Jews. Those Jews also can be saved, of course. But it says in Zion and Jerusalem, which represent what? The church. If you will find this Holy Spirit, then you must attach yourself to the church and membership in the church. And come with me and hear the preaching of the gospel, which is authorized by the church, the office of all, all believer. Church membership in our day and age, again, beloved. Not simply, well, I, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and I'll just float around. I'll listen on my TV or whatever, online. No, church membership is important. Why? Because the apostles go on to say in the New Testament when they preached and the Spirit honored their word and there were believers where they preached in these different cities, even in the wicked city of Corinth, and they would live in the city of Corinth. They weren't called to leave the city of Corinth, you know, and flee that wicked city, that city of, of semen and so on with every abomination known under heaven available. No, you live as Christians in the city of Corinth and you make your testimony there by the power of the Holy Spirit and come with us to church to hear the preaching of the gospel. This is where salvation is 
found. The apostles organized congregations and then authorized office bearers, didn't they? Place after place after place. This is what Christ's Spirit led them to do for the well-being of those who believe unto salvation, for our well-being, for your well-being, beloved. And then calling others to join us and put yourself under the offices, the special offices which represent Christ himself. And then make your witness as you were called as well. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Striking, isn't it? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever will. I think sometimes we're hesitant to say that. Sounds so Arminian. Whosoever will. Just the elect. Beloved, who do you think is going to will? Do you know who they are? When you're preaching the gospel, beloved, to the ungodly, to the unchurched, you don't know who they are. But there is one who knows who they are, the Holy Spirit. He knows in whose heart to plant the word for whom Christ has shed his blood, bought by the price. He knows in whom to work irresistibly. And he will use the word himself in whosoever he will and one is made willing in the day of his power, and only one in whom his, the Spirit has worked will do this. But whosoever will, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, is an important statement, beloved, because it's not simply those who belong by blood relation to Abraham. It's those who are found throughout the nations, whoever they may be, bought by the blood of Christ. You preach the word, says the Lord Christ, and I know my own, and I will find them, and I will use the word you preach to gather them to myself. And we, beloved, are with numbered amongst those whosoever shall call. In our ancestry, yes, many of us, but then the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as well, according to his electing grace and power. Thanks be to God. And beloved, it is those who believe who will be spared that great and terrible day of the Lord. For us, it will not be a terrible day, but it will be a day that fills us with awe, awe and a certain kind of holy fear and gratitude that we have been separated by the power of the Spirit, by His will, contrary to all we deserve, no different than others who perish, to him be the glory and the praise. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks. Grant us understanding by thy spirit. May the word stir us up to reflect our Lord and Savior, to be open about his name, whose we are, and use us and ours, we pray, Father, in the gathering of the church in the hastening of the day of his coming knowing that the day is urgent that this gospel go forth so that he may come again in jesus name amen <laughs>